so what goes on in your brain when you think you're going to do something? I just say, brain, this is what I'm going to do. Please do it. My brain tells my bones to move my muscles, and my muscles tells my fingers to move, and everything just, like, moves. I'm the total boss. The brain's the boss of everything inside of my body. That's Ruby there talking about her free will to just decide to do something. This week... We're talking about the mathematics of free will. And it's a live episode, as in, in front of real live people. It was recorded at the Cat Laughs Comedy Summer Series in Kilkenny. My guest was Dr. Kevin Mitchell. He's a neuroscientist and a professor at Trinity College Dublin and the author of a book called Innate, which goes right to the heart of the brain. Well, not the heart, kind of confusing terminology, but right into the the mushy bits, into the cells of the brain. And as he got to those smallest bits of the brain, Kevin started to wonder about free will and whether we have any choice in any matter. Uh, The notion of free will has, of course, been debated by the finest minds in science and philosophy for millennia. So naturally, I completely felt qualified to join in. But what is it to do with maths? Well, uh, buckle up, because we're in for a bit of a head melt here as we tackle topics like quantum physics, a bit of chaos theory, what is a number anyway? And there's a little bit about the annoying phantom traffic jams and where they come from, plus a quantum joke. I should also pay tribute to the audience at this one. The link for the tickets went up uh, before a full show description went in. And I think some of them may have been expecting a bit more comedy. Uh, so I guessed that. And as soon as I went on stage, I did a little bit of comedy at the top, but I've cut that out because it's just an ephemeral once-off thing, you know. You had to be there. and But I'm hoping they enjoyed what came afterwards as well. You also get to hear my stage voice which isn't all bassy like this, but slightly hyped and frantic. That's what adrenaline will do for you. But I soon stopped yelping and started listening. Uh, As always, I hope you like this. Please do subscribe, share, leave a review, just to get the whole podcast seeped into the consciousness of people so that they will think it was their idea to listen to it and not some algorithm. Anyway, off we go. So we're, we're just bringing this all together for a bit of podcast recording. This is the function room. So I'm going to sit down. The sitting down bit has started. And I'm going to welcome to the stage uh, my very special guest for this episode of the function room to talk about all the stuff that we do. Do we really have a choice or is it governed right from the start? Were we always going to do this anyway? Will you please welcome to the stage Professor of Neuroscience and Genetics, right? Proper job, not the kind of stuff I do. Uh, a proper actual job, Professor of Neuroscience and Genetics at Trinity. Kevin Mitchell, welcome to the stage. Thank you. You are very welcome, Kevin. Thanks. And thanks for agreeing to be part of this. And when you've done all the PhDs and the studying and the learning that you've done, there comes a point where you're going, I don't know, Cullum, if what's in my brain will fit in your brain in terms of explaining <laughs> stuff. Uh, but we might give it a go anyway. So what is, So you're an, a neuroscientist, right? Yeah. 
uh, by trade and by learning. What does a neuroscientist actually do? Yeah, well, um, we come in lots of different types. So, I mean, all we're all interested in, in how the brain works, how the brain produces the mind, which is a really deep question that we don't fully understand. Um, how it produces and, and controls behavior. My own interest really was in how the brain develops. Actually, how does it get put together? It's an incredibly complicated organ that um, the, the instructions to put it together have to be in the DNA of a single cell, a fertilized egg. Uh, and somehow that, that egg divides and divides and divides. Uh, and you get, uh, you know, the brain develops over here and the heart develops over here and so on. And then different parts of the brain differentiate from each other and they all have to be connected in this staggeringly complex way. So so my own area is trying to figure out how that happens. And and just you mentioned the mind, because you know the way we think and it feels like the mind is a is a is an organism. Do you have you found the mind in your in your work? <laughs> you, you know what I think I mean there's a really deep intuition that you just expressed there that the mind is a thing that's separate from us somehow. And I think it's deep but uh, mistake really conceptually it's hard to get it's hard to back out of it um but i like to think of the mind as a verb not as a noun it's not an object it's it's the brain working away and some aspects of its working you experience mentally but you can't separate those two things from each other the mind is the brain working basically okay so we mind things yeah, <laughs> we or we or, don't. Or we don't mind, or we don't yeah. mind. So you're looking at the brain, and it's a big squidgy mess, right? Yes. It, uh, it's, it doesn't have borders. It doesn't, it's not lit, lit up on, on different areas. Like when you look at diagrams of it, obviously it says this bit does this. Yeah, yeah. Are you, do you put electrodes on one bit and then on the other measure the voltage and see what happens when you show somebody a picture of an explosion or a cat or a yeah cat. i mean there's different ways to do it and people use um you know do experiments with, with animal models to do things that obviously you can't do with humans um you know in an attempt to try and get at say the understanding of, of the biology of disease for example or just of how the brain works normally so in some of those ones you can you, know, you put electrodes in and record or uh you may look at the brain and see that you know this bit's connected to that bit and so on um, for experiments with humans, people use things like magnetic resonance imaging to see uh, which parts of the brain are actually drawing more blood because the magnetic resonance imager tracks the iron in the blood. Um, so it gives you a kind of a proxy of which parts of the brain are really working hard when someone's doing whatever, watching a movie or um, you know thinking about hitting a tennis ball or something like that. And so an MRI across my brain now would would show kind of panic as I <laughs> try to appear clever yeah. uh, like a kind of, so my fight or flight would be employed now where i'm like maybe I, i'm trying to ask the right question and i think the audience knows i haven't a clue but they're <laughs> the audience are okay because they trust you but whereas so that's that's the kind of stuff it's 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 my responses to stimuli so the stimuli might be fear or sure yeah and no, i mean there's a you know there's a there's a danger in in that in looking at the brain and saying, oh, this bit is active when you do that and this bit is active when you do that because it makes you think that they're very isolated and they each have functions and you can point to a bit in the brain and say, this is where fear is and this is where, you know, happiness is or this is where hunger is. And um, and that's a mistake because actually it's all circuits working working with each other. 
but you know, the, we have only the tools that we have at our disposal. So the way that we can look in, in humans does involve that kind of a, a proxy of what's going on. So already we think we want things and we think we make choices, but already I presume very early when you start into neuroscience, you start looking at what you call like circuits. Like, yep. And so what, what is humans beautiful with all their choices and they create art and they help people and they fall in love and all of those kind of lovely things. But I presume soon enough in, in your work, you start looking at a thing comes in here, there's a, a sort of a wire type thing. It produces a response and you're getting closer and closer to the numbers that drive all the things that we do. Yeah, in neuroscience, we're trying to figure out how the, how the brain works to guide behavior, which essentially is uh, for either an animal or, or a human guiding decision-making on a moment-to-moment basis. What action am I going to do now? And that depends on what goals you have, uh, what beliefs you have, what things you're sensing from outside in the world, what your internal state is. So, you know, if you see a, a steak, you might say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eat that, right? So you perceive the steak, that's sort of, represented in your brain somehow whether you're hungry or not is represented the goal of having dinner may be represented and then uh, somehow the the mechanism all all works and the danger there is getting an, an overly mechanistic view of it where uh, the more we understand about the neuroscience of it and can even uh, you know control those things in in animals sometimes even in humans by stimulating parts of the brain we can drive a belief or a goal or a perception once you're able to to do that, it feels like you're you, you can you can change the thinking by changing the machine, and then the question is, well, maybe it's just all the machine. Maybe there's the thinking isn't actually doing any work in there. And that kind of sounds a bit like advertising as well, too, because I think about yeah. like uh, I wasn't thinking of a pint uh, until a certain, until I saw a picture of a pint, like that kind yeah, of or that one over there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's, um, it's particularly nice, but I, I will control myself. Uh, it, that is somebody, no, that's obviously a, that's advertising and at the image, either on a picture or right in front of me. So that's, that's making me think, actually, I didn't know I wanted yeah. a pint, but I saw one and now I think I do like, is, is that a kind of a, is the stimuli, is that changing my mind? Yeah, I mean, it, yes, it is. Yeah, I think. Um, Although I probably you know, would have, I was always up for a pint. Like, you probably yeah, were. I was, in, I was in that area. You were yeah. probably primed uh, yeah. already. But I mean, the interesting thing is to is is when we think about our decision making. You know, sometimes we very consciously deliberate about a, a decision, um, but a lot of times we don't. And, um, you know, most of our behavior actually is fairly automatic and we're not really given a lot of deep thought to most of the things. A lot of it is just habitual, actually. Um, but occasionally we do. And, and certainly I'm among the people who think that we do have free will and we can control our own decisions. Um, but once you start thinking about the, the brain as a machine, it's, it's a little hard to figure out, well, where is there any room in there for me myself to be having any control over over this thing that's just a physical substance or an object that that works away whirs away uh, uh, by itself and the reason we're sort of talking about this in like a podcast about numbers and maths like that doesn't seem like it's related to the big gray splodgy mess in our skulls is that i suppose for you when you you so you start with a big 
here's a mess and you start looking at different uh, bits of it. When you go deeper and deeper, do you end up getting right down to cold, hard numbers? And yeah. All the, all the beautiful stuff that makes us human starts to fade away. Is that, is that well, what happens as a neuroscientist? It is. I mean, it, yeah, it can be. And, and certainly that has happened to me, which is why I'm here talking about, you know, we're going to talk about physics and maths, even though I'm not a physicist or a mathematician. Um, so the way I started thinking about this is, um, so I, I wrote a book a couple of years ago called Innate, which is about how um, our brains get wired and how that shapes our personalities and our psychological traits and how those innate predispositions influence our behavior over our lifetime. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, really... It's still available, by the way, in all... In all good bookstores. Probably, uh, it's in all good bookshops. It's probably, would you find it at the... M8 service station in Cashel, like is it? Has you, have you found sure. it in petrol stations? It's in yeah. the Barack Obama Plaza. Yes. In, yeah, well, that, yeah. Uh, if it's not Apple. there, it's probably not at other petrol stations. Yeah, yeah. it uh, mightn't be, but it's on it's on uh, the internet for sure. Has Has anyone ever bought it as a last minute uh, Valentine's Day gift? Like, is it has, has it been a gifty book? I I've given a few spare copies as, <laughs> as gifts, yeah. And my my wife has one on her night nightstand that works as a coaster. And has so, she has she read it? She has opened it. Okay, all right. Yeah, she did. Yeah, it's obviously not. So it wasn't enough of a stimuli. Like yeah. you'd written the book and placed it in front of her still, which didn't make. Okay, Apparently. well, I, I I'm I've read bits of it and I think it's a great book. Uh, and so it's called Innate, yeah. and this is you going. What is it about the brain that makes us do what we do? Well, it's it's you know not in a general sense. It's about what is it about my brain that makes me act a certain way compared to your brain, the way you act. And of course, some of that is our experiences, and I mean a lot of it is. But we do have some innate predispositions. We are wired differently right from the get go because we have different genetics. You know, I talked about earlier the the program to make a human brain is in the fertilized egg, but. That program varies between everybody because of genetic and differences. That so. program is that written in like molecules? Like is that yeah. like, when you say like because it's when you think of programs, you think of code, computer yeah. code, and yeah, that's yeah. like ones and zeros, and the computer reads ones and zeros. It says an instruction. It sees four ones and two zeros, and says right that means open the file or whatever. Yeah. yeah. But the code inside in like an egg. Yeah. What's it? It's written in the sequence of the DNA. Letters. So 3 billion letters of DNA, A, C, G, T, those are the chemical bases that make up DNA. And, and obviously that, the letters, oh, these are stupid questions, I know, but the huh? letters, is that bits of chemical, like, the, yeah. that, so an A is like two molecules up here and one stitched onto the left-hand side and a B yeah. is something else. Yeah, yeah. So but it's... Those, those yeah. arrangements, those patterns of... Yeah, so DNA is made up of these subunits, four subunits, and and ACGT is just the first letter of the chemical name, adenine, cytosine, etc. I've got a little tingle of feeling smart there. I've never felt as good as this in in Waterstones at the smart book table. So, right, okay, so we're... So so the, the human genome is just three billion letters like that, chemical molecules, basically. And what the DNA codes for is proteins that are made in your cells. And you have about 20,000 different genes. Each gene codes for a protein. But the really um, in, interesting information in there is the bits that control which protein you make in which type of cell. That's, that's written in an egg that is like, re- <laughs> to use a scientific term, very small, it's, very f***ing small. It's yeah. teeny, teeny yeah. weeny. Yeah. But I mean, the interesting thing is that the, it's the proteins that are in the egg from the, in the first place, that have to read out that instruction. So they read the DNA in the fertilized egg, they turn on some genes, 
then as the egg divides, already at the two-cell stage, this guy's going to start to turn on some other genes because of the way the, the proteins get sort of separated between the two cells. So the interpretation of the message varies as you go from cell to cell to cell so that eventually you end up with muscle cells express the proteins that they need and liver cells express the proteins that they need and so on. So that's how that um, process works. Although I shouldn't make it seem like we understand it all. That's yeah. the big gist of it. But um, that's what the whole field of, of developmental biology is, so is about. So those instructions written in chemicals and written, written in these proteins uh, make a brain. Yeah. And your previous chunk of work you were doing is how those instructions lead to us doing the things we do. Yeah. And the, I mean, the idea is that, um, you know, human brains, generally, there is such a thing as human nature, which is different from other animals, right? Um, but we all have variations on that theme because different circuits in our brain may be tuned just a little differently. There may be more nerves in one part of someone's brain versus another that might, say, make them more risk-averse or more sensitive to rewards or um, threats or something like that. And then in various circumstances, that might make somebody more outgoing or, um, you know, more conscientious or more confident in making decisions with less evidence or something like that. So those kinds of things, I think, can those parameters and how the brain works can manifest as our personality traits, which then in a, in a given context can affect how we, do, how, we, how we act. And the natural sort of consequence of thinking about that is to say, okay, well, fine, I'm making decisions, right, because I want to, but I'm not controlling how what I want to do because I'm just wired a certain way. So am I really free? Like, you know, I mean, you nice people here decided to come here tonight, but you probably didn't decide to be the type of person who would want to come here tonight. It depends. Some people thought they were coming to a comedy. Gig. <laughs> so we, we threw that little curveball in yeah. to show how random, random can also change yeah. uh, what <laughs> the situations you end up in. Because then the, the temptation would be like, if it's encoded in you, then you'd say, Asher, look, what else would he do? The father was the same, right? Yeah, yeah. Or, he came from, or he got that from the mother's sure. side. But then where did they get that from? Yeah, so, yeah. So, so, so then you start going, goes all the way back and all the way back. Well, yeah, I mean, and generally the phrase, yeah, sure, you know, he didn't lick it off the stones or yeah. the apple doesn't far, you know, fall far from the tree. I think, you know, we all understand that people's personality is in part genetic, um, but also there's just, you know, for an individual, um, the way that that program gets expressed is partly random because you can have identical twins who have exactly the same genome, but their brain doesn't end up exactly the same even at birth because the genome makes the, you know, codes for these proteins, but then the proteins go off and they jitter around and um, the genome can't control them anymore. There's not, there's not enough information in there. So there's actually a lot of randomness in the outcome. Each, each run is a kind of a unique unique thing but which makes us all even more unique yeah. than our our genetics does but unique but still there are people who think that because you can boil everything down to these these codes that are that are written in no matter how small they are and these things are made of proteins which are you know you'll have a bit of one element here joined to another element here and all that and that comes from all those stuff that are made <laughs> billions of years ago so the whole thing, there are people who think that ultimately every single thing, because if you go deep down enough, everything is just numbers and yeah. anything we do was going to happen anyway. Yeah, yeah. And that's, 
that's some heavy shit. Like it, that people it, like like do people want to believe that, or is it a kind of thing that happens in science that says, I don't like the answer I'm getting the more I do this study, but I can only come to the conclusion that we are all uh, everything that was that's happened to us was going to happen anyway, or. Similarly, other people go, actually, we're all living in the matrix because the numbers are suggesting yeah, that the yeah. whole thing's a simulation. Like, are there people who believe that everything I've just said was all is going to happen anyway and I had no choice over it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, apparently. I don't know how they go through life, but yes. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, once you start thinking along the, the lines where I was saying, you know, we're, we're, we're pre-wired a certain way, so we don't really have full choice because we don't control our desires and beliefs. But you can go a level below that and say, actually, these desires and beliefs that all that is just is just surface it's an epiphenomenon really it's just neural circuits firing what's, what's an epiphenomenon by the so way means, i know what it is it's just my yeah, yeah. people in here it, with, it, um... <laughs> it's something that happens that's not doing any work in the system it's what it appears to be like but actually the 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 argument would be that the real work is happening at the level of these neural circuits firing but you know once you start thinking that well then you you go to the level you were just talking about, which is to say, well, actually, that's all made of molecules and atoms. They're controlled by the laws of physics. So, um, you know, what's it doesn't matter that it's in a neural circuit. The atoms are going to behave the way they're going to behave. The laws of physics say you start with a, a system. It can be as complicated as you like, right? So it's the billions and billions and billions of atoms. They exert various forces on each other. Um, and then, you know, if you know at one instant the layout of all of those things, and you know the laws of physics, then you just run the thing one step on, and now here's where the state of the system is. So if your brain is the system, and your decisions are the outcome of the state of activity of your brain, then the physics determines what you're going to do. So you, when, when you, uh, as a scientist, so you spent a long time getting to the stage where you, you learn how the brain is wired and you're studying this and it's very exciting. But the more deeper you go, you see, you become aware of this idea that what's the point? Mm -hmm. Everything is predetermined. Do you go, oh, what am I doing this for? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, what's the point? Like when, as a, something I'm always interested with science, because at some point you go, I'm just not going to learn anymore because I'm afraid of what I'll find out. <laughs> or what do you do then at that point? Well, I mean, I think different people have different reactions. There's some people who seem to have a rea reaction where it's like this is so unintuitive because it feels like we're making choices all the time. To think that everything we're doing was determined by physics and not just now, but was determined like from the point of the Big Bang to say well, there were a bunch of atoms there in the universe and you just roll the tape forwards or backwards, it doesn't matter. It's all effectively all of time is laid out in one big block, and you can just look along the way. That that's pretty discomforting. Yeah, and also like it sounds a bit like uh, wasn't there some religions used to believe that? Like, is it who is the ones who said there's only 110,000 of us allowed on the spaceship, or not the spaceship? But is it is it Jehovah's Witnesses? Jehovah's Witnesses said there's only there's only 100,000. And they've been named and picked already. Are there any Jehovah's oh, okay. Witnesses in, by the way? <laughs> but so, so it starts to come into areas of religion as well, though, doesn't it? That oh, yeah. kind of thinking. As most scientists are materialists, which, which you know, they, they think the world is made of material stuff and we don't need to invoke, say, a soul or a spirit or some immaterial 
um, mystical kind of thing to explain stuff, right? As neuroscientists, we want to understand how the physical brain explains mental experience and our behavior and so on. Well, then it feels like you're getting locked into this kind of um, deterministic view. Um, and deterministic means it has already been agreed what's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, there's so the word is really slippery, actually. And um, in the way I'm using it there, it means predetermined, right? So it means that that the next state of the system was determined by this one and the one after that determined by this one and so on, which means that if there's no wiggle room anywhere then the hundredth state down there is still determined by this one. So you thought Neffet had lots of power. Uh, <laughs> they're not even in control of it themselves. Yeah. So you start doing a bit of reading about, yeah. this kind of brings us to the, the maths and the physics, and it brings us into some mad stuff about numbers, but it gives you a way of, and some unusual equations, but it gives you a way of figuring out why actually we might, we might be okay and we yeah. might still have control of our lives. Yeah, so, so if what I just described, that, that view of determinism is true, a predeterminism is true, then I don't see any scope for free will. And some physicists think that, I mean, you know, Stephen Hawking, for example, is quoted as saying that, that our actions are as predictable and controlled as, as the orbits of the planets, you know, which is just wrong in my view. So my reaction to that is to say, well, there's something making people think that but uh, I can either accept that, in which case I don't know how to go on living my life uh, thinking I'm making decisions, but knowing I'm really not. But it's, it's also all very well for Stephen Hawking to say that because he's dead, but some of us still have to live. <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, I know I won't s sensationalize this, but I'll probably clip out the bit where you've called out Stephen Hawking and said he's wrong. And, just, <laughs> and I'll be like, Trinity professor slams Hawking in shock you claimed. If, I hope that's okay. No, no, that's fine. That, that won't, uh, I know we've, we had a long discussion beforehand about how people just want to get sensational stuff out of science in order to sell books or sell yeah. tickets and we both agree that was a bad thing but you know oh. i need to get the numbers up on the podcast as well too that's fine. <laughs> but I anyway mean, I, I, it's not an exceptional view i picked his name because he's a, a recognizable physicist yeah. but it's um it's a common enough view yeah. among many neuroscientists as well uh, but it's wrong because actually it turns out the world isn't to predetermined yeah. like that and so when that how has, did you find that out well it's or, i mean or, it's, or become okay with thinking that was the yeah case. yeah so it's brought me into trying to um learn about you know more about physics and and maths and uh, obviously as a scientist i had some education in that but as a developmental biologist we actually don't use a lot of complicated maths or i haven't anyway in my career to date which means i'm having to get back into stuff that i wasn't um that I'm not comfortable with, very much out of my comfort zone. But, and, and it starts with quantum physics, which actually oh, th is... Th thank God, we've, we've yeah. got to something we can all... <laughs> we can all uh, is outside I, everyone's I, I, comfort zone. I thought we were going to get a bit esoteric and intellectual <laughs> there for a second, but you've jumped onto quantum physics, yeah. which I've, I find absolutely fascinating because it's physics, but you don't know what's going on. We're in school and you get your answers... You get the marks for getting the right answer, whereas quantum physics says, well, might be, or it could be the other one, you know. Yeah. So, so well, anyway, so you get to quantum physics and yeah, what yeah. you see. And you so, see there. well, I mean, it, it's interesting in quantum physics. So you may know that uh, some, you know, one of the core parts of, of quantum physics, when you're looking at really, really small things, electrons, photons and things like that, and you're trying to predict their behavior, is that you can measure some aspects of their, uh, of their behavior, like their position, for example, really precisely but if you do that you can't also measure 
their momentum really precisely because there's some uncertainty in uh, in that. And the question is, what does so, that so just what in does that one, mean? The, in in trying to put it in my own terms, you know where he is, but you haven't a clue what he's doing. Is that yeah. basically quantum? Yeah, physics? exactly. Well, I mean, the the more tightly you define its position in space in a sense, the less of a window you have to measure its speed. Okay. Right, because you need, speed can only be measured over some amount of time. Position can only be measured really precisely at a real instant of time, otherwise the position is, is moving, right? So that's uh, not exactly the Not, not the to reason. trivialize that, but in a way to trivialize that, is, could you say to a guard uh, <laughs> who stopped you for speeding that technically he, he knew, he couldn't possibly say you were speeding because he could, if he didn't have an exact, if he knew exactly where he stopped you speeding, he couldn't define your speed, and in he couldn't in the court prosecute you because he couldn't say where he stopped you speeding. Is yeah. that is that possible? You could try it. <laughs> see how you see how you get on. There is a joke about Heisenberg and, and Einstein and Schrodinger being stopped by a policeman, but I won't. Tell oh, you. really? Okay, sorry. Uh, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll tell it proper. I'll look it up and I'll tell it properly. So. <laughs> Yeah, so it turns out joking about speeding fines and quantum physics is an old joke. I didn't know that. Uh, but when it comes to reusing a joke, uh, Comedian's Code says I have to do due diligence. So here is the joke as told by Redditor uh, Pat Pend. Uh, so Heisenberg and Schrodinger get pulled over for speeding. The cop asks Heisenberg, do you know how fast you were going? Heisenberg replies, no, but we know exactly where we are. The officer looks at him confused and says, you were doing 108 miles an hour. Heisenberg throws up his arms and cries, great, now we're lost. The officer walks back to the rear of the car and lifts the lid of the boot or trunk, depending where you are. Hey, says the cop, do you know you have a dead cat in here? An angry Schrodinger replies, well, we do now. I mean, this isn't a lolgasm. It's kind of clever. The whole thing, idea that you can't know position and velocity or momentum at the same time. Lol. It's also, like, it's the kind of joke that a particular type, mainly man, might have on a T-shirt. The cat bit at the end, that's to do with Schrodinger's cat, a thought experiment involving a container, a cat, uh, cyanide, and the concept of radioactivity or radioactive decay. And it's saying that you don't know what you can't observe. Like, I don't want to spoil it with a, shite explanation. So we'll do a proper episode on all of that. But if you're just panting with anticipation, probably best to just Google Schrodinger's cat for idiots uh, for plenty of reasonably accessible explanation. And also it does have that kind of visual help as well too. So there will be pictures of cats. Right, back to the show. Basically within within quantum physics, if you're Part of the, the very sort of fundamental aspect of it is that you, if you're thinking about an electron, it's not, it's not just a particle and it's not just a wave. It kind of is like a particle surfing on a wave, but its position actually isn't definite at a, at a, at, until something happens that makes it definite. So it kind of has a probability of being in many places at once until sort of until somebody looks at it and then it and then it it collapses that with this sort of thing called the wave function collapses so that it now can only be in one spot because it's effectively interacting with some bigger object so that's a really really weird strange thing and there's been arguments about what it means for the nature of reality for you know 100 years but at some point physics as a field took the the position 
which is summed up by shut up and calculate. The, 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 the equations work. We can predict things down to incredibly detailed level. Um, we don't know what it means for reality, but stop talking about it. It's, uh, it's too confusing. So this is an instance of I've got, I'm, I'm doing the running the numbers. The numbers seem to look fine, yeah. but real life, I haven't quite matched it to normal walking talking human beings yet is that right yeah well i mean there's a couple of things first of all the planets sorry yeah i mean the quantum stuff works quantum mechanics works really really well for uh predicting what small things are going to do electrons and photons and and so on and and some slightly bigger things but it you know it doesn't predict what's going to happen at what's called the classical level the size of chairs and people and rocks and things like that um and the, at the classical level, you know, Newton described his mechanics and, and so on. So at some point, all this sort of randomness or indeterminacy at the quantum level, it doesn't kind of percolate up to the size of things like you and me. So, you know, you and I are in a definite position and we're not, and we're, you know, we're not going anywhere. Um, but still within us, electrons and photons and things like that, protons, whatever, may um, be sort of jittering around a little, little, little bit fuzzy. So the big gap in terms of how stuff works is that we know how big things work. Yeah. We know how small, very, very, very small things work. And we know that big things are made of small things, but we don't know how that's linked. Yeah, exactly. And when it comes to free will, what some people would say, they may admit that there's indeterminacy at the quantum level, but they'll say, but that doesn't affect things at the classical level because it kind of all gets averaged out. So the classical level is deterministic. So we're back to that position where your your actions really are predetermined. But you are looking at the small stuff saying, no, this this gives me comfort that actually even that we can actually make our own choices. Even these tiny, yeah, which is weird because you're looking at tiny electrons and then going, this does affect how I chose to do the thing I chose to do. And the reason, the reason for that is that it's true that in some systems, all that little jittery noise will, will average out. And those are systems that are described by linear equations. So where the, the, uh, you know, a small change in one parameter gives a small change in the outcome that you're measuring. And that, you know, the orbits of the planets are like that. They're very linear, right? And, and very predictable. But we're not like that. We're highly nonlinear systems. And, and there are lots of other things like the weather, for example, is a highly nonlinear chaotic system where small differences in the, in the parameters of things can make a huge difference down the line just because of the way the system evolves. It's got all this feedback, feed forward, amplifying loops and, and very unpredictable sorts of things. So I think at least that systems like our brain are in that chaotic kind of regime where small differences can make a big difference difference uh, to the outcome hearing you talk about the weather and then the small difference is that where when people uh you know you hear that sentence about a butterfly's wings flapping yeah. in theory could lead to uh, a hurricane on the other side of the world is yeah. that is that in the same area when you yeah well so talking about that, that once you start yeah so once you start thinking about a really complicated system like that then you have to think okay well i could measure all the bits right, all the parameters that I think are going to go into my model of that system. And then I can just run the model and see what the next state is. But actually, people in predicting the weather realize that when they get those measurements, they're not, they're, their uh, instruments are only so precise, right? So they know that the measurements that they've gotten are a little bit um, not great. So they, 
they truncate them at a certain point. So beyond a certain decimal point of whatever the, the wind is or something like that, they just stop them. And then they put them into the model, but then they add noise to the model because they know that there must be some fuzziness to those measures. And then they run it like a thousand times. And so when you hear, for example, there's a 70% chance of rain tomorrow, that means that 70% of this simulation's predicted rain and 30% of them didn't predict rain. But it'll probably... But it'll, no, in Ireland, if you have anything rain. on, if you have anything yeah. on, it'll definitely... If you barbecue on, it's going to rain. It'll definitely rain. Um, you, you, said, yeah, you said the word uh, propagation and tell me if this is a stupid example, but you know when you're on the motorway and uh, there's a traffic jam for no reason, usually at the M9 exit to Kilkenny, yeah. and, and you get there and it's like, what was all, what was all the fuss about? Is... Is that an example of a slightly chaotic system? So first set of people in the queue, like they go, this is the M9, I'm turn, you know, and they make a quick decision. So yeah. they've, so the randomness is that they've been having, so, you know, two people in the, in the car, uh, having a row, right? That's, that's just, you know, and it wasn't determined. So that's just a thing that happened. And they, oh, shit, we nearly missed the exit. Then they put on the brake lights and they switch over. And, and is that like a, one of those things that, and like, in a, like your butterfly wing, that propagates back and everybody behind them overreacts yeah. a certain amount to yeah, seeing so brake lights to, to certain degrees. So when you add them all up, you get a traffic jam three kilometers back. Is that an over? Yeah, no, I mean, that's a, it's, a, it's a good example of, a, of uh, a system, which is the whole set of all the cars there amplifying a, 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 an input, right? So the input is the first person who brakes five miles an hour, say, and then the next person has to break eight miles an hour to stop because they have a reaction time after that. It gets amplified. So it's a good system to, to, or a good example to illustrate the way in which a small difference here can, through the dynamics of a system, be amplified. And of course, you could also have one that gets averaged out, that, damp that dampens down that kind of thing. But all of those dynamics are at play, you know, in a complex system like our brain, just as much as in the weather. For me, I think that some of the quantum noise could what, bubble what, up. What do you mean by when level. you call noise? So, like in uh, modern parlance, noise obviously has its own meaning, and then noise has you hear noise said in a kind of a PR sense of just ignore the noise and yeah, do what yeah. you need to do. What's no, what's uh, noise in a weather model? Is that like do they throw in turn up the storm? knob on the model or what does well what, what they'll do is they'll take they'll take all the parameters that they have in their weather model like i said they're truncated to a certain point and then they will use a random number generator to add a few more digits a few more decimal places of that three or more ten more whatever it is uh, and then they'll do it again and again and again and every time they run a simulation they add a different set of numbers there right and then a lot of times the, the outcome may be the same if it's very stable but if it's in a regime where it could go one way or the other um, then small changes in some of those parameters may push it that direction or the other. And I think our brains work the same way. They're, they're in a sense, unpredictable. So the argument that what's happening at the quantum level just averages out is true for some types of systems, but may not be true for the types of systems that I'm interested in, uh, which, it, which is our brain. Um, so there, that means there may be some indeterminacy, the point of which is the current state of the brain, even down to the tiniest, tiniest level of measurement, may not, in a predetermined way, guarantee what the next state is. So you're, you're kind of pinning your hopes that when we do anything, uh, that the extent to which we have made that this 
kind of um what's the word vague definition of free will that we made a choice is because we can't uh let me let me i'll cut this bit out of the recording so you just act like uh <laughs> let me start that again <clears throat> that's I'm, I'm into audio stuff now so i'm just putting a little clap on the audio track that's that's how cool that's how cool we all are right <laughs> But I'll leave that laugh in, though. I'll put that laugh in. I'll take that. I'll, 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 that's man in the pink t-shirt's got a good laugh. You'll hear it eight times uh, during the recording. So when you're worried going, do we have any choice over anything? We can pin our hopes on the fact that at the tiniest, tiniest level, the fact that you can't know what the smallest thing in the universe is doing and where it is at the same time means that there's enough doubt, enough randomness to suggest that things we did were actually up to us. Is that... Well, yeah, so it's I, not I, I don't enough. want to sum up your entire life's work yeah, yeah, with yeah. the wrong sentence. Uh, but is it's that a, in the area? Is it's that a in start. The so, yeah. so it doesn't get you to free will right away to say that there's some randomness down here because it's not much better to say this randomness is happening in my brain and, and I'm just doing things at random. That doesn't put you in control anymore. But what it does say is that what's happening just at the lowest level doesn't determine everything about the system. And so it's not determinism that's really the the barrier. It's actually what's called reductionism, which is thinking all the real work is happening down here with the laws of physics controlling little particles. And all the stuff about neural circuits and at a higher level, psychological level, beliefs and desires is just kind of illusory. It's not really, it doesn't have any causal influence over how the system evolves. And what I'm trying to argue is that because this system is not so determined at that level, it gives some room for the organization of the system to be doing some work, to be controlling or constraining where the atoms go. Because, I mean, the brain still has to do its work using that physical stuff. It's just that it's the, the top-down stuff is now constraining it. So it, it, it's changing the, the direction of, of causation, if you will, so that it's not all just laws of physics playing out amongst all these, these atoms, if that's right. And, and, but what, I mean, one of the interesting things that, that I found recently, which really surprised me, was beyond the quantum indeterminacy stuff, which I think is kind of widely known, but nobody really knows what it means for reality, was something even deeper about the nature of mathematics itself. And that probably applies at the classical level as well. So, you know, I was talking about the, the parameters of, of weather, for example, and wind and so on, and positions of air molecules. There's an idea in sort of traditional mathematics that at least those things have a value in reality that can be infinitely precise. We may not know what it is or be able to measure it, but it exists. So there's a number that describes it. So the wind, the speed of the wind, is that is you can measure so that we might be able to measure it because we only have this cup floating around, yeah, those, yeah. The, whatever that thing is that spins around that measures wind yeah, speed. Yeah. Uh, it can only measure up to a certain extent or similarly the, the guard's speed gun. Yeah, exactly. Which is, yeah. I think apparently it's within 10 miles an hour. So you, if, if, if they get you at 85k... Uh, you can argue that it's not precise enough um, and therefore you should be able to get off uh, the court case on that. Don't take, that's not official legal advice. Uh, but <laughs> um, but, but an, the actual speed you were doing, the actual speed, 130.000, you know, all the way, those zeros go on forever, yeah. but they, it can be measured somewhere 
right to the very end. Yeah. And so, I mean, there's, there's, when we're talking about numbers that describe physical parameters in the real world, yes, in, in some aspects of, of some areas of mathematics, at least an approach to that would be to just assume that those numbers are all given all at once with infinite precision. But there's a, another completely different way of thinking about numbers, which is not as a, a, a static thing that has infinite precision out to as many digits as you want, but as a process that evolves in time. So it may have uh, very good precision up to, say, 10 decimal places at a given point. But beyond that, it starts to get a little fuzzy. So there may be a probability that the next digit is an eight or a two or something like that. And it may be a higher probability of one than another. But as you go down the line, they, they just become effectively random. They're not yet determined in reality, which uh, is an area called, it's called intuitionistic mathematics. Right. And, and I've only, you know, come across it lately because it's not very well, uh, well known. But apparently, you know, a, a century ago, there were big debates about whether that was the right way to think about mathematics or not between a, a guy named Brower who was uh, advocating that and uh, David Hilbert, a very famous mathematician, and Hilbert won. So, so. so this is, so people, like, it's one of the things that I, because one of the, you know, when you start sums in school, and I know we're not talking about the number line and it's one and it's two, but one of the things you can kind of trust is that a number like how many apples are there? There's yeah. there's three apples. There's four apples. But the idea that very very uh, eminent mathematicians are debating whether a number has an end or like it's ma like is that well, philosophy? Like what? Yeah, I mean, why yes, are it they? Is. Yeah, yeah. Why do they do like? Do they do that because they know everything else? <laughs> you know, what I mean, like like when they get when they're having these debates yeah. about like whether you can measure a number to the to the right to the very end of it after the decimal point mm -hmm. like what are they at it's not your fault uh, that Thank they're doing you. this but <laughs> but when but when you're watching them do you see the point of why they're doing it or do you go lads you have to give it, you have to just say it's fine at some point well you know? i mean in a, in a yeah. sense it is because you can develop a whole um branch of mathematics with different mathematical tools that are based on the intuitionistic view of numbers as a process that evolve in time that only become definite through time in, in the present, basically. Um, or you can develop it uh, assuming that they're given with infinite precision. And, and it, it acts the same way because, in effect, the mathematicians don't use all those numbers at the end, right? Because they couldn't because it would take too much time to do those computations. So Practically speaking, you can the, the mathematics in e either way gives the same answers. But philosophically, or even metaphysically, I guess the question is: Well, what does it mean for the nature of reality? And the underlying assumptions are completely different. So, so what's happening is that because I, 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 when I was reading about this, you see all this like philosophy and maths. And what's weird is that in in a, in the way we look at uh, say in education, it's like, do mind your philosophy now? There's no there's no jobs in that. Mind that whole shite. Go away and get a job as an engineer. And yet, the top mathematicians have these ri like ridiculously intense discussions yeah. about what is reality, yeah, like yeah. what is life. Well, and um, and, and they have to then figure out. Well, if I go back far enough, it's written down in a sum somewhere. Is that is does that actually happen? Like, it's, it's I hard mean, to it, leave. 
it to me it's it's like you know most of the mathematicians that I know and colleagues that I interact with don't necessarily go around having these philosophical debates and it was a surprise to me that that there was this is really naive I guess that I, I just had never thought of it before that there was a philosophy of mathematics that at its very core disagreed on what a number is right you know <laughs> I mean it's a very different way of thinking about a number as a fixed quantity yeah. versus a process that happens through time. Those are two completely different things with very different implications, not for the way the maths works, but for things like determinism and yeah. free will, um, you know, and what the nature of time is. And in fact, you know, one way to think about time, what differentiates the future from the past is that in the future, those things are all it's not that there's randomness added in, right? It's just that they're slightly indeterminate. They're slightly fuzzy. If you could look into the future, which we never can, things might be just a bit out of focus. And as they come through the present, they become realized into some definite state, and then they become the past, and they can't be changed anymore. So, if, yeah, it has implications for time travel. Hang on, let me see what like, yeah, time. We have two is. minutes to go on time travel. Wait a second. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I love the idea, though, that top mathematicians disagreeing on what a number is. It sounds like a, a nightmare conference where they're like, right, <laughs> we're just going to start off the day with a quick chat on what a number is. And then uh, four months later, they haven't agreed. Um, the implications on time travel, just since you threw that in there at the end, is that like time has no meaning or how, how, how does, what's the implication of time travel? Yeah, well, I, I was just joking, but... The, oh, no, that's a, sorry. The, <laughs> but it, it, I mean, in, in a sense, it, it changes for me, at least. Let me just say it changes for me the way I think of the future, right? Often I think we have a, a metaphorical feeling of walking towards the future, right? We're moving into the future and there may be separate paths there that we can follow, but each path is kind of is sort of laid out, right? And we think maybe about choices in that way. But um, now I'm thinking of it differently, that actually the future is this indeterminate, fuzzy thing, and that we kind of pull it into us, uh, that, that it's the thing that's moving through us. We're always stuck in the present, and it's moving through us, and, and all those strings are being pulled together, and one of them is sort of coming out the back as a, whatever is, is realized, the, the fixed the fixed thing that happened, if that's not so the, too trippy. Uh, yeah, I was trippy. Uh, I like trippy. So this is, yeah. if I'm picturing it, it's just like, so you're saying time moves towards us rather than us passing through time. Yeah, it's just, a, a, it, it's a different way of, I guess, thinking about what time is and what the present is. And the real head wrecker then is to ask, well, how long is the present? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so how long is now? How long is a moment that we're experiencing? And, and in that point at which all of these indeterminate um, aspects of these physical parameters become determined by interacting with each other, how long does that take and how defined do they get? How many decimal places down do they become defined before they, before reality moves on it's a, and, and doesn't care anymore? So it's a sort of a, a just-in-time reality uh, that, we're, that we're living in. I feel like how long is now could be one of those Facebook memes in front of a sunset posted by, you know, that person <laughs> in your life who's always putting up stuff about guardian angles. Uh, how long is now is such, <laughs> such a lovely, what a lovely phrase. And we we're nearly at the end. What I like about the last hour is my head is nicely melted, right? <laughs> but it's, it's, it's very thought provoking. If, if you're of the mind to think about free will, 
what should you look up as a kind of a primer for why we do what we do mm. and how it links in to the numbers? Just when we're walking out here, because I know all of these people want to find out more about determinism and uh, qu- quantum physics. Where do you start when you're when you're thinking about free will? Yeah, well, I mean, there's no shortage of people who've you know, written about it. There's tons of books about it. Of course, it's been philosophized about for thousands of years. So um, there's no shortage of things to look at. The question is whether, you know, and there's, of course, stuff the question on is whether philosophy. You, whether you want to, but uh, yeah, you do, you do want to, I'm telling you, you want to. Yeah. There's no shortage of books on yeah. quantum physics yeah. and, um, and there's, lots of, uh, there's lots of good ones. Um, I guess in my own experience, trying to pull them together, uh, to be honest, partly the motivation for writing the book I'm working on now is that I haven't seen them pulled yeah. together in a way that left, because this stuff does my head in entirely. It, and so I'm trying to get to a point where I can understand it and and, and feel like, okay, I understand now how, uh, you know, a, a whole system can can work and you get this sort of higher levels constraining the lower levels and, and, and stuff like that. But, um, you know, to get, I didn't expect to get dragged down into the level of physics and really basic maths um, to deal with it. But yeah, I can't, and I can't think of any off the top of my head that are well, already. Think, think of the one that's at the top, that is on the top of your head, which is the one you're writing. What, well, what, what, when's your When's your book about free will out? Yeah, well, it depends when I finish writing it. Okay, that's um, good start. Yeah, it uh, hopefully will be out next year, and um, it's trying to yeah the basic premise is trying to understand how we could have free will because it's certainly I don't want to start with the premise do we or not because it certainly feels like we do. So I want to understand in what way. Uh, do we have freedom? What does our what does it mean to want to do something? How does the, the how does the you know the neural basis of that work? But also, um, you know, it will consider things like determinism and so on because it's a, you can't really um, discuss the problem without getting into that. But the the basic premise is that it'll take a point of view that trying to understand free will in humans, it, it, humans are actually the worst place to start. We really need to anchor um, that conversation in something much much simpler so it takes an evolutionary look and so says, not, not cats no okay. no it's much simpler much simpler yeah cats. so yeah. bacteria okay. you know how does a bacteria decide to go left or right yeah what, what does it even mean for an organism to do something yeah. it's just a bag of molecules why would we say an amoeba is doing something as opposed to stuff is happening inside it but it, it can do something it is a, a causal agent and that's what the book is about all right I actually like I'm I feel my brain is actually full, but it's kind of buzzing with it with all of these kind of things I want to look up. Uh, so, ladies and gentlemen, give a huge round of applause for Kevin Mitchell. Thank you. You you have been uh, inveigled here uh, to a recording of the Function Room podcast. And in it, I cover all sorts of things uh, about the kind of stuff like the last episode was about. Uh, how is it that some cues are good cues and actually work. And then some cues are absolutely terrible. Uh, you also find out facts like the reason we know a lot more about statistics is because Guinness's, there was a mathematician, a secret mathematician working at Guinness's, uh, and he came up with a way of figuring out whether how to make a better pint. So that's where maths, maths is absolutely everywhere. That's kind of my little mission. Uh, thank you so much for coming along. Uh, it's six o'clock now, just out in time for the Angelus. Uh, and... <laughs> And the rest of your day, uh, good evening and enjoy the rest of the summer, the Cat Laugh Summer Series here at the Langtons Hotel. Thank you. Thank you. Right. Head spinning after all of that. So, yeah, 
if I really want to be you know, kind of a maths viral star, I'll probably need to work on my TikTokification of some of the concepts like free will and quantum mechanics and quantum physics. We're still very much long form here at the function room. But this is the kind of stuff I feel like I like to hear a number of times from a number of different angles and gradually gain an understanding. And obviously this is all in preparation for that moment where there's a crisis and your life depends on you knowing how to explain quantum mechanics. So I'm now a bit more ready. Are you? By the way, Kevin mentioned the collapse of the wave function uh, there and we didn't do further explanation on that because we did need to get out of the venue on the same day we went in. But just very quickly to explain what the collapse of the wave function means. A wave function collapse occurs when a wave function, initially in a superposition of several eigenstates, reduces to a single eigenstate due to interaction with the external world. Collapse is a black box for thermodynamically irreversible interaction with a classical environment. I mean, like, what more can I say? Look, we'll be back to all of this repeatedly from different angles. And just like some of the audience, I'll spring it on you. And fair play to them, that audience in the set theatre, and indeed all the people who worked on the gig, uh, the sound technicians and the people who organised it at the Cat Laughs. They all stayed. They all stayed right to the very end. It's almost like they had no free will to move. They were frozen to the spot. Maybe this. It, they thought that if they stood up, then everybody would say, oh, they definitely don't understand it. And that's the way I like my audience, just stuck there. That's it from this week. Uh, but coming up soon, next time, we'll be talking about all sorts of stuff, including the maths of our genes and DNA. For now, goodbye. mind thinking that or does do you find yourself doing it without even thinking I feel my mind thinking at first because I never do something without thinking is this the 